This is Opinionated. I don't really have a full understanding of it, but that won't stop me from having an opinion. That's why we're here. Join Features Editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson. You know, crypto is no longer just about money. It's about culture now. Isn't Wikipedia already a DAO? Part of politics and part of sports and part of gaming. And it's not just like the future of money anymore. As they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. It believes crypto is bad and it wants it out. I'm even old enough to remember when Microsoft was a kind of cool company in Silicon Valley. Ben, you're old enough to remember when telegrams came over a wire under the sea. (laughs) And just a reminder... Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello, this is Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller, Opinion Editor here at Coindesk. And here is Danny Nelson. Hi, Danny Nelson. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, good morning. And Anna Bedakova, all the way from Moscow. Good afternoon. So all week at Coindesk is a Privacy Week, or as I like, I like to say, uh, Privacy Week, which is a theme week devoted to this very important topic very much at the heart of cryptocurrency and the blockchain revolution. We have a number of feature stories and opinion articles from famous people and deep dives into mixers and good topics like that. David Chalmer wrote a nice op-ed for us. Dan Jeffries, who's a a futurist. It's a very important topic. And please go and check it out at the website, www.coindesk.com privacy week, and you'll find all the content there, a number of uh, very good stories. Okay, Anna, you're going to lead the interview today. Please take it away. Hey, yes. I hope you are enjoying the content of this Privacy Week and learning something new about how to stay private online. I, for one, really enjoyed the piece about Monero, our colleague wrote, explaining this privacy coin. And uh, there is a lot of other amazing stuff. So yeah, check it out. We're having a really inspiring guest today who cares a lot about her own privacy and has plenty of great tips for you all too. So welcome, Lily Rhodes, previously senior mining analyst at Compass Mining. And now she's the head of business development at Foundation Devices. Am I right, Lily? Yes, that's right. And Foundation Devices make hardware wallets, but not just some hardware wallets. They make open source hardware wallets and they open source not just their code, but the hardware parts too. I think that's just a great way to start our conversation. So Lily, can you tell us just to start what is an open source wallet and why people may care to have one? And what does it have to do with privacy and self-sovereignty? Well, sure. First of all, like Bitcoin is built on open source code. Like that's how it started. The community built it up through different contributions from you know, different developers and cryptographers. And a lot of the projects in the space were actually built on open source code. And that's important because... This is the complete opposite of what you see with big tech and big tech. It's closed source. You don't know what's in it. You don't know if there's anything malicious there. And I think it's important for people to be able to look at the code, inspect it to make sure that it is bulletproof with security and privacy. And it's especially important. Like if you look at the wallet space, because you had in the beginning, you didn't have a lot of offerings, like you had Trezor and and Ledger and these wallets. And then you had cold card come out and build on top of the Trezor code. And then you had foundation devices build a little bit on top of the cold card code. Like this is how we innovate. This is how we get better. And if you want to ensure the longevity of a technology, it needs to be collaborative. It needs to be open, right? Like imagine using something that one developer made and it's closed source. This developer leaves the company. Who's going to contribute to the project? Who's going to look at the code? Like, does it die out? 
But with community open source projects, it's always going to be there. There will always be someone to contribute. And, you know, it should be open because that encourages people to contribute. Why would consumers, why would the users care if their wallet is open source or not? I mean, that goes back to security, right? Like they want to be sure that they have a, a strong group of developers making this technology. If it's closed source, they're trusting the manufacturers and the developers to act in good faith. I mean, we've seen with companies like Apple and Google, like they have closed source code. Look at what they've put into these things that we're using, like this surveillance tech. They can be um, sure that they're not going to have their stuff backdoored. They're not going to be surveilled potentially. Like it's just a way to ensure confidence in the product. But if I'm fully deep into total privacy to the point that I'm worried about how the air gapped pieces of tech that I'm using to store my Bitcoin, that I need that to be safe too, then why wouldn't I just turn to something like a paper wallet that where as long as the actual thing is kept safe, it's out of the question whether or not it's open source or not, because it's completely removed entirely from the tech world. Right. I mean, that's totally an option. But if you want to use advancements like multi-sig, you should have like a signing device. If you want to onboard someone and easily transfer funds, like you can do it with an AirGap wallet. Like one thing I like to do is use my device with a watch-only wallet. So that way I can generate addresses and transfer funds into the hardware without ever having to deal with it. Like that can stay stored. You can't do this with a paper wallet. I guess we're coming to the question, like what actually is privacy and security for a Bitcoiner in this time? And what should people actually care about when they think of the options, how they buy their Bitcoin, how they store it, how they use it? Like what would you underline as the most important things? What does it mean to be you know, a privacy-minded Bitcoiner now? Yeah, so a privacy-minded Bitcoiner starts with acquiring, you know, KYC-free Bitcoin. And KYC is the know your customer information. You know, you have to go, if you go to an exchange or to like an auto DCA company, you're putting in your name, you're scanning your license, you're, you're taking your picture. If you go back to the origins of Bitcoin in the white paper, you know, it says this is P2P digital cash. The actual Genesis block pokes fun at banks. It says, you know, chancellor on brink of second bailout. Like we should use Bitcoin in a circular economy. We should use it privately because to me, it's like a quasi fiat banking system. Like no matter what you do with those coins after your ID is scanned, you're on record with the IRS that you bought, you know, X amount of Bitcoin at this date at this price. Is it bad though to be on record with the IRS because you have to report anyway? I mean, obviously, right. Like you have to follow the law or what have you, but we could end up in like a China-like situation where they say, okay, no more trading. This is illegal here. They could issue an order to the exchanges and say, you have to sell your assets. You have to pay unrealized gains. It just becomes very easy to target. So like if your Bitcoin is KYC free, nobody can come after it. But basically the government will not come after it and say, hey, this is an illegal thing. Maybe you should give it to us or whatever. I mean, they can make as many statements as they want and say, you're not allowed to have this. But if there is no proof, like there's no trail, how are they going to see that you own it? How is one even able to get it, though, in a KYC free manner? Like, how is that possible nowadays? Would I have to go to you and say, 
hey, I want to buy a, a Bitcoin and then you sell to me just peer to peer. So that's actually a really good way to do it. But there are different like decentralized exchanges where you can buy Bitcoin without your ID. Um, some of these exchanges are like Hoddle Hoddle, Local Cryptos, Agora Desk. Really popular one is obviously BISC. A big complaint is there's not a lot of liquidity, but that has changed a lot over the past year. I mean, you can buy with Amazon gift card. You can buy with money order. You can use Zelle. You can transact peer to peer. There are so many options. And I know that's more technical, but for someone who's just getting into it, like I would say, find a Bitcoin ATM that verifies only by quote unquote name and phone number. With this, you could generate temporary number and then you can buy Bitcoin that way. Using a Bitcoin ATM is as simple as putting in the cash specifying how much you want to buy and then scanning your wallet address for that transfer. Like if you can use a bank ATM, you can use a Bitcoin ATM very easily. Another option would be this thing called Azteco vouchers, where you literally go and buy a voucher for Bitcoin with cash and then you redeem it online. You can go on Telegram groups. Uh, there are matrix chats. You can mine Bitcoin. That's obviously to me is, is the best way to do it. Actually, I just found a bunch of Bitcoin ATMs in Moscow, and then they don't even ask for your phone number and the name. You, you just basically feed the cash to the machine, and then it scans your Bitcoin wallet. In a few hours, in fact, the transaction comes. I had no idea there are still these things in Moscow, and it was in these like shopping centers, whatever. And there was like this guard near it who, who was, you know, it, it was near the entrance. So the guy was like scanning temperature of people and whatnot. And I asked him, like, do people even use it? And he said, yeah, a couple of people a day are coming. I, I can only guess why they're buying Bitcoin there, but it exists. It still exists. And it, it's kind of fun. And uh, totally unrelated, but can I send you uh, $10,000 cash? <laughs> In an envelope. <laughs> In an envelope. An un Absolutely do car. this, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a sanctions violation or not yet? Who knows? Uh, Danny, like a sanctions violation is your signature joke. I only have one joke. I'm a one-trick pony. You know that. <laughs> Look, you don't have to go totally non-KYC. Like we're still in a dollarized economy. You can start building this stack separately and continue to stack, you know, on the KYC exchange. If you want to use it for lending, you want to use it for as collateral. Like right now, it's you have to have a KYC Bitcoin. So there are still uses. And I think it's important to draw this distinction for people because a lot of them say, okay. I'm saving the world and I'm protesting against the government by buying on Coinbase. You're integrating yourself into the system. This is not opting out. This is protecting your money from inflation only. In fact, I have a question related to this, you know, kind of the, the KYC world and the KYC free world, right? That there are all these like non-custodial exchanges. Even Bitcoin meetups still exist this day. You can find it in some towns and, you know, this... Um, uh, Bitcoin ATMs, and there are these regulated exchanges that kind of whitelist you, the user, right? They whitelist their addresses and so on. Do you think we're going to see kind of this growing cleavage between these two worlds, the future in which you have your non-KYC Bitcoin and you can only spend it and use it in this non-KYC Bitcoin world while the regulated exchanges and any regulated service will just not take it. We're kind of going to have these two separate Bitcoin systems, one like Cypherpunk Anonymous and another one fully regulated, surveilled, and so on. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing that difference grow more and more, specifically in the first world countries. But if you go to the third world countries, like my home country in Lebanon, we use Bitcoin. We use it peer to peer. There is no exchange for us. Like we're using it to transact simply because the local currency is worthless. And now the US dollar is harder to get a hold of. So, I mean, that's being adopted there. If you look at Venezuela, it's the same trend. So there really isn't a separation between this non-KYC and KYC world because everything goes through a dealer. Everything goes through peer-to-peer. But yes, in the United States, for example, I, you know, I think in the short term, it's going to grow further apart. I know people that use it peer-to-peer. I use it peer-to-peer sometimes. Like, I think it's important to do it because that's the true opt-out. If you're a business, right, you're, you're registered with the government, the IRS, the SEC, or whatever you're required to register with, you should use the KYC. You have to put KYCs. Bitcoin on your balance sheet, you have to go through, like, let's say, let in if you want a loan. I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, we're in a dollarized economy. We should leverage our investments to make more money for us. But we have to draw the distinction between the two. Yeah, I guess MicroStrategy is not buying from local Bitcoins. Yeah. So a, a lot of people think of crypto as a you know, Coinbase thing, and that's where they go and uh, transact this stuff. Can you just talk a little bit about the kind of original conception of Bitcoin and those cypherpunks and how important privacy was to them and, and how that's really baked into the original uh, idea of Bitcoin and how we might be losing that over time? Yeah, so cryptography is actually a very old field. It dates back over two decades. And the cypherpunks in the 80s and 90s, they discussed this idea of bringing freedom to people through technology and through digital cash. This was before Bitcoin was even conceived. Everything was out there to put together the components of Bitcoin. Like All these problems were essentially solved minus the double spend. So Satoshi brought it together and there was actually a lot of work done on his original code. His original code was actually written uh, for Windows XP. It gets totally different right now. But one of the key arguments that was made in the Cypherpunk Manifesto was saying, you know, the governments are getting you know, more powerful, corporations are getting more powerful, and they are going to use that data. They're going to speak for us, and we should expect them to speak for us. Hal Finney came in with the idea, and he said, the technology can be used as a tool to liberate and protect rather than control and enslave. And a big part of that is financial technology, because everything we do touches the financial system. We need money to go to the grocery store. We need money to buy a house. We need banking to get a job and provide for our families and loved ones. And right now we're seeing a huge trend towards digitization. So they saw this trend way before it started. You know, they knew it was either authoritarianism powered by big tech, or it was going to be censorship resistant sovereign tech. And we got a lot of comfort and convenience in exchange for losing our privacy and losing control of our own data. And it's time to reverse that. I think a lot of these KYC companies, I think they have good intentions. Don't get me wrong, but they are doing the people a disservice by saying that they are opting out by using their services. And that's simply not the case. We've lost a lot of that, like cypherpunk ethos. And I think it's important for more people to talk about it. Bitcoin was never meant to be this solely store of value. It is sound money and sound money by default is a store of value. Just like gold like was back in you know the 18 uh, early 1900s. Do you think people still care about 
this privacy regarding to crypto or, or regardless crypto, is it getting worse or better? Uh, like we have in our privacy week package, we have uh, this really interesting interview with Chelsea Manning. And uh, she says that, you know, basically the society stopped caring about it or submitted to the idea that there is nothing they can do about their privacy. And now people just kind of apathetic, don't care about it anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's true, right? You bring up these points to someone and they say, oh, but I have nothing to hide. Or is this software that you're using, is it legal? Like, can I use this? Even so. <laughs> like they are so conditioned to this situation because it's hard, right? Like nobody wants to go and flash their phone with a private OS and have to move all their stuff from Apple and uh, Google Cloud. It's not easy. Like these big tech systems, there are engineers at these companies that are actively working to keep you in their systems, to make it hard to switch, to increase those barriers. But I just tell people, I'm like, look, you know, I understand there's some things that you don't care about, but do you really want someone building these profiles about you? Like they can narrow you down by your age, where you live, what you're interested in. And like you see data leaks all the time. Someone runs for office and then all this stuff comes out about them. Oh, they liked this post. They commented here. They bought this thing or they were involved with, you know, this movement that is considered wrong, whatever it is to slander them. I think, you know, it is a natural tendency to want to be private. And I asked the follow-up question. I'm like, look, if somebody gave you a private option with this, would you take it? The answer is always yes. So I think we need to educate them on, on why it's important. And nobody likes to be tracked. I mean, all my friends are like, well, I looked up this thing at this shop and now it's all over my Instagram. Like it is so annoying. And I think the best way to deal with it is just switch one tool at a time. So, you know, starting with VPN usage and just go from there. Like you're not going to go from zero to a hundred overnight and that's okay. Like you have to recognize that nothing is foolproof, but you can take those steps. Even if you are like an iPhone user and you want to stay on iPhone, you can change your settings to be more private. You can get a mobile VPN. You can swap out Safari with Snow Haze, for example. There are so many things you can do. And this because the, a lot of these people who reject the notion of, oh, I don't care. I have nothing to hide. Is because they're exposed to all these nerds that are telling them they have to have Linux and they have to air gap this and they can only use this technology. Like it's overwhelming. There really isn't that strong messaging of, hey, it's a journey and it's okay. Like you're going to make mistakes. Every single piece of data goes stale. And what do you say to people who say, well, you know, you're only interested in privacy because uh, you've got something to hide. I mean, isn't that kind of a typical argument? What's your response to that? But isn't that kind of the point? I mean, that's the point of privacy, right? Rejecting the premise that we have to share who we are all the time. So that can be construed as something to hide. And I guess maybe, it, Lily, you have a different thought, but I would argue that the point of privacy is absolutely we have something to hide and it's not something sinister. It's just the nature of our identity. I mean, I agree exactly. with you completely, but I'm just saying people have this idea in their head that uh, why do we need privacy if we're not a criminal, you know? Well, that's because they have never like been in a situation where, you know, their information was used in a negative way. And also like the way I see privacy, really, it's the right to selectively reveal yourself to the world. If I want to reveal certain things about myself to a party, like I will, if I don't, I don't like privacy has been around before the digital age. I mean, we, they used to seal their letters. They locked their doors. Like they had, like they whispered their secrets. They had private meetings. 
this is like a natural human tendency to want privacy. We're so used to seeing this, this image of it's like you're going to have data collected about you. No one's going to use that against you. Like it's just, it's a slippery slope. And now people are becoming more aware. When you think about all of this numerous leaks and databases of people's uh, private data on sale on darknet, and then people can take uh, a bunch of databases together and see like, hey, so this is your bank account and this is your ID scan. And here is your employer and they can social engineer. And there is in the moment, there is a rampant scam uh, epidemic in Russia where people get called on their mobile phones and uh, the scammers say, hey, I'm, I'm from your bank. Uh, can you confirm this transaction for me? They really get people to send them all their money from their bank accounts. And why is it possible? Because your phone is available, because your uh, banking information is available online, and it's so easy to scam you. Yeah, I think it's incredible. I mean, more uh, options are popping up. Like, just look at the app market, too, in the F-Droid store. There's a privacy app for almost everything. And, you know, you can go buy a, a device that is proprietary, like a Google Pixel, and you can extract that operating system and put an open source operating system that actually focuses on your privacy. And I hope one day we see, you know, these projects more funded so that they can proliferate and so that people can have these options. Because I mean, the average person, right, they're, they're so worried about what they're doing day to day. The last thing they want to think about is I have to set up my own <laughs> phone and Exactly, exactly. It's actually a perfect uh, point to wrap, I guess. This was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Lily. What do you guys think? I think it's terrific. Thanks very much, Lily. And yes, I completely agree you. with that. You know, this is going to become a, a really a thing in crypto. It needs to be baked into the design of products rather than expecting people to always make that extra step. Uh, well, that was a great interview, Anna. Thanks for arranging that. What are your takeaways there? It's interesting. By the way, I didn't know where Lily is from. And it's really interesting that she mentioned that in, in her home country in Lebanon, people use Bitcoin peer-to-peer. -peer. And basically right. people like don't care about KYC and stuff. They have been put in a position that peer-to-peer -peer is the most available way for them. So they're using it. They, they yeah. like, don't have Coinbase or whatnot. Well, it's interesting about privacy. I mean, it's, it's one of those issues that you only care about when you've uh, you know, had it taken away from you, or you've had someone try to take it away from you. And it seems to make a lot more sense in a place like Lebanon or a place like Russia, where there really are big bad people coming after your, um, your data for malevolent reasons. And I was just thinking about this incredible Edward Snowden quote that I read a while ago that I just wanted to recount here. And he said that arguing that you don't care about the right to privacy because you have nothing to hide is no different than saying you don't care about free speech because you have nothing to say. And I think that <laughs> sort of perfectly encapsulates you know, the, the, the argument and why actually the right to privacy is very similar or very sort of, you know, connected to this idea of free speech. And that's one of the big ideas of, of Bitcoin and crypto generally that, you know, our financial transactions, our financial, you know, rights should be an equivalent to our free speech rights. And, and I think that's a perfect encapsulation of, of that, that idea. It, it's true. Although, you know, with Bitcoiners, I do think part of the reason why people don't want to be fully forthcoming about who they are in reference to their asset that has appreciated tens of thousands of percents in the last couple of years is because they don't always want to, when they move in or out of that position, to be fully 
compliant with paying what they would if they were on the record as owning it. And so while I do agree with the, the notion that people should really embrace and respect and tout their privacy or rather not tout their identity, I fear that a lot of the times the real motive here is couched in a desire to avoid paying one's taxes. Right. Keep in mind that in some countries, crypto is not regulated. It's kind of a gray zone. And Russia is currently one of them. And so, like, for example, in Russia, some people are reluctant to like, talk about crypto under their own name because they're not sure if it doesn't become illegal tomorrow and then somebody comes after them. I think that's the case for the big part of the world. Danny, so Lily was making the argument that in some sense, Bitcoin has been invalidated or maybe even corrupted by the need for KYC and the need for these exchanges like Coinbase to come in and sort of build up the, the mainstream market. What do you make of an argument like that? Do you think we've lost our way with Bitcoin if it's not fully I, private? I, I think it's a gross generalization. Coinbase doesn't control Bitcoin. They, for sure, they have one of the biggest footprints in the space, but they don't control it. They don't speak for it. And if you're going to have a permissionless asset that anyone can utilize, then it's going to be natural that some of the biggest hit places where you can interact with it are going to have rules. And it doesn't mean you have to work with those entities. And it certainly doesn't mean that those entities speak for it, although the public might make that association. The true people who really believe in the tech will understand, I would hope, that they can find their ideals in other uh, systems. So no, I don't think it's corrupted, although yeah. I understand why that perception might catch on. I mean, you know, this is open source technology and it will get uh, used in, in different ways and you yeah. can't control it. And if you believe in open source, then you believe in open source and you don't just say it's corrupted when it's, it's, it's not a certain way. I mean, it's the same argument about different cryptos, which are not Bitcoin. I mean, they're fundamentally exactly. open source ideas. Yeah, you can't have an asset that you want to be pure in the way you think about it. Also say that it's open to everyone right. and get upset when someone else utilizes it in a way that doesn't perfectly conform with your ideals. Right. I would say that it does impact the narrative that new people, like the newcomers, hear or see when they are curious about Bitcoin, because what they see is not the old cypherpunk narrative of how important it is to be self-sovereign and private. They hear about, you know, Coinbase stock going up. They hear about the Bitcoin price going up and down, and what they can make out of it. They hear all these regulators say. They should be regulated. We don't want all these scammers and like ransomware attackers and money launderers to use crypto. And they're like, oh yeah, and it's bad people use crypto. So is crypto bad? So I think it is somehow important in, in a sense of making Bitcoin available and making crypto available to new audiences. The more conflicting narratives are there, the trickier it is for them to figure out does it have anything to do with their life? And do they want to have anything to do with this? I would argue that we've already had our privacy phase for Bitcoin. We've already had the moment in time, the, the era in time, the years in time when privacy was the biggest reason buying and selling point of Bitcoin. And beyond the community of hardcore uh, Bitcoin maximalists and privacy hawks, that wasn't enough to get this asset and to get crypto to the world stage. And why is that? It's probably partly because most people don't care about their privacy. And that's a shame, but we're probably not going to win them over by continuing to focus on crypto as a privacy tool. 
Well, we'll be watching this very closely because there's going to be a continuing battle between the uh, privacy hawks and the people who don't care. And we'll see how that plays out. I think you can argue different ways, you know, which stage of the revolution we're at. I think there has been a mainstreamization of privacy with, with some of these companies like Apple, for instance, which are very much making a play for more privacy minded tech. So I, I think there is a movement in that direction. But obviously, in some ways, crypto has been sort of become less private over time. So, so we'll see how those forces play out. Thank you, Anna, very much. And thank you, Danny, very much. And thank you, Michelle Musso, very much. Uh, and this is Opinionated. And we're going to wrap this up. Bye. Enjoy the Privacy Week. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Batakova, Danny Nelson, and guest Lily Rhodes. Today's show is produced and announced by Michelle Mousseau. Our theme song is by Ellison. Have any questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. So please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, opinionated, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.